Welcome to the only show bringing cops and the community together for some real talk and some real listening. This is uncut. This is uncensored. This is Black and Blue Live. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Black and Blue Live. How you guys doing out there? My name is Dale. I'm the host. Here's my co-host over there. No, over over there. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah, there she go. Everybody say, what's up, Lizzie? How you doing? Long time no see. Oh, what happened to your to your to your audio? Hold up, hold up. This happens every single time. We are live, ladies and gentlemen. And boom, there you go. You alive. Say something. All right. Can you hear me hey, now? Hey, hey, we right. got you. <laughs> Yeah, he be trying to he be trying to play me. He be trying to yeah, play yeah. me. It's Black History Month. Sure, Give me my voice. Sure, yes, I gotta make sure I get the last word in. <laughs> How you been? I've been really good. I've been good. I'm, I'm yes. excited. I'm thanking God for health and and safety and security of family. So yeah, and celebrating yes. Black History Month. So, yes, today's the been? last day. Yes, I'm I'm good. I'm excellent. You know, trying to trying to get this pod going and and uh, everything i'm blessed thank god for that and thanking god for health and family and all that so thank you appreciate it appreciate it um yeah, i haven't yeah. seen you in a minute so uh last show we had was uh was a valentine's one i, I think you were out with uh with the loved one and I was I was it down. yes i was holding <laughs> it down so it's all good I want to I thank everybody you. for joining us. Yeah, thank you everybody for joining us here live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and Periscope. Send in your comments, your questions, all that. We got a real special show. Um, but like uh, Lizzie just said, it's the uh, last day of Black History Month. And I just wanted to to acknowledge that real quick because, you know, every day is Black History as far as I'm concerned. But since we're here, right. um, yeah, since we're here, why don't you just tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe somebody that inspired you uh, as a black young lovely woman growing up. Oh, Harriet Tubman, hands down. Harriet oh, Tubman yeah. was oh, definitely yeah. one of my sure. heroes. She rose, uh, just, um, and and I'm super excited that recently they revisited her history. Of course, Hollywood has its spin, but just really highlighting not only was she um, just courageous, but an abolitionist, and and she worked for our nation, served our nation um, as a spy, as a war hero, um, not losing a battle being an amazing conductor of the Underground Railroad and um, actually eventually getting a home in New York that is still preserved today. Um, and having and on that property, she even continued her legacy by building a home for the elderly, making sure to go back and get her family members. So just the integrity of someone who definitely um, reminded people that um, it's easy to say, just give it a few more minutes or wait when it's not you that is yeah. the currency or you suffering. And we see how cyclic it is now a lot of times with that. So definitely Harriet. Yeah, yeah. definitely Harriet. Yes, yes. And there's, a, there's right. a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot in, in, in my life that, you know, I like, you know, I like Malcolm and, and, and Martin and yes. uh, also Mr. Thurgood Marshall, you know, he, uh, Argued uh, in front of the uh, the Supreme Court, Supreme for us to Court, get the right? To, yes, for us to get the right to be able to to be integrated in schools and and uh, were not for that, you know, maybe I wouldn't be here where I am today with, with my education and you as well. You know, we we both got some good yeah. educations and and he was a part of that. So yeah. I appreciate that what he did for all of us. And uh, speaking, of, speaking of law, yeah, speaking of law. That's what uh, today's topic is. We're going to discuss the criminal justice system with three amazing 
guests here, and uh, let's bring them on. We're going to talk about uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the uh, U.S. criminal justice system. And uh, be sure to send your comments and questions. Yes, our first guest here, she is a uh, district attorney uh, with the, uh, an assistant district attorney with the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office in Georgia. Everybody, please help me welcome in, help us welcome in Simone Hilton. Hello, hello. Welcome, Miss Hilton. Glad to be here tonight. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest here, he is a judge in the uh, circuit court in uh, Dane County, Wisconsin. Everybody, please help us welcome in the Honorable Everett Mitchell. Good evening, everyone. Welcome, Good evening. Your Honor. Glad to be here. Yes. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing good, man. Glad to be here with y'all in frosty Wisconsin. Yes, <laughs> frosty it is. <laughs> yeah, it's cold, it's cold we, up here. Yeah, we out here in Cali, so uh, you know. Thank you. I'm frosty, thank you, thank you I'm frosty I my studio. That. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you reminding me of that with your air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and our third guest here, she works in the office of the uh, uh, criminal uh, federal, de uh, I'm sorry, what was that? The uh, federal defender. Uh, she is also out in Pittsburgh. Everybody, please help us welcome in Miss Malakia Cantrice. Cantrice. Hello now. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having yes. me. Glad to be here. Office of the federal public defender. So excited. Yes. Glad you can make it. Happy to be here. Yes, yes. So let me bring everybody on. Here we are. Everybody, there's our discussion for today, discussion of the U.S. criminal justice system. Uh, everybody watching this online here, make sure you send in your comments and questions for the panel to answer, and we will make sure we get those on. Uh, real quick, I want to, before we get into our discussion, I want to bring everybody real quick and just uh, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and uh, so we can get, a, get your credentials here. Uh, Ms. Hilton, why don't you tell everybody about yourself? Sure, sure. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, again, my name is Simone Hilton, and I have the honor and pleasure of serving as a deputy district attorney in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I serve in our domestic violence unit. Um, I am originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but kind of trekked my way down south. Um, I am an HBCU graduate. I graduated hey. University. Hey. <laughs> University and also from North Carolina Central University. So I'm a double HBCU graduate. Um, and I just can't wait for us to have this discussion about the criminal justice system. All right. Thank you for joining um, us. Yes. Love it. Love it. And uh, Judge Everett, uh, Judge uh, Mitchell, tell everybody about yourself a little bit about your credentials there. Yeah, I, um, I am a Dane County Circuit Court judge here in uh, in Dane County, Wisconsin. I've been elected since 2016. I'm also the uh, senior pastor of a congregation here, uh, Christ of Solid Rock Baptist Church. So I have two jobs. Uh, I went to graduate of Morehouse College. Uh, All and right. And eventually, yeah, yeah. Then eventually went up to Princeton for seminary and then finished up here at UW Law School and have been here since... Uh, uh, since that time, I am married to a Howard graduate. Uh, we met in law school here at Wisconsin. Right. So, you know, uh, you can still find love in Wisconsin, black love. Yeah. <laughs> and so so I'm just excited to be here. I'm, I am the presiding judge of our juvenile division. 
And I'm a former prosecutor who pr prosecuted domestic violence. Uh, but I went to law school to be a public defender. So I've had a crazy, uh, crazy path to this place of being on the bench. So I'm looking forward to this conversation tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Ms. Contrice, uh, tell everybody about yourself and your credentials real quick. Hello. Hello, everyone. Again, I actually went to law school in my second career. So I had done 20 plus years of HR, fiscal management, things such as that, and didn't go to law school until later in life. I won't say how old, but I will say it was over 40. Um, I went to law school at University of Dayton School of Law. They had a wonderful right. two-year program where you started in summer and went through for two years and graduated. From there, when I started, I went to law school so that I could end human trafficking everywhere. And as we know that that didn't happen, um, but as I got into law school and I started really understanding systems and systemic issues, um, I realized I was much more defense oriented and then um, went on to get a master of laws at Northeastern University in human rights. Um, did a lot of prisoners' rights, poverty law, um, education, all those sorts of um, things, but knew all along I would end up in the area of death penalty defense because I am against the death penalty and I wanted to have a voice in that area of law. All right. Thank you for, for joining us. In this oh, I also, today. Okay. I also teach race, racism in American law. So I wanted to make sure people knew that, that I can, that I, that's the, the other interest of mine. All right. All right. So thank I'm you so for joining excited. us. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 need to, I need to get, I need to, I need to get your syllabus. I, I taught that class for UW law school, race, racism, and the law this uh, past mm -hmm. semester. That was pretty, that's pretty interesting. It yeah. is. And, and, and it's much needed, amazing. much needed conversations right now in, in 2021, leading from what 2020 was all about, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you all feel that um, within your colleagues and maybe, um, I guess, kind of your sphere of influence that the conversations of implicit bias or systemic racism are met with immediate, like, kind of resistance or have your offices kind of really tried to open those doors to begin those conversations most recently i'll just say with everything going on and the reimagining of justice and defund movements do you guys find that happening at all i see miss katrice smiling <laughs> um i so in in our office our chief a uh, federal public defender is a black woman who was raised by a civil rights activist. And so that was the conversation at all times. So I have to say yes, but that's not been, of course, historically my experience. So I'd like to hear more what um, you all have to say. So I would say um, being here in Georgia, I've had the honor and pleasure of serving under three black district attorneys um, mm -hmm. here in Georgia and um, one of my one of my, my previous employer, I'm Sherry Boston, the DeKalb, the DeKalb County District Attorney. Um, she uh, we had implicit bias training for the entire office, not just attorneys, but the entire staff. And I know that's something that wants to be implemented by my current boss, Fonnie T. Williams, who's the district attorney of Fulton County. So it's definitely important and at the front of the minds of um, the leadership for which I've worked for. Um, but I've also been blessed to work for black district attorneys as well. So my experience is also a little bit different than others um, across the board. 
Right, right. Yeah, you can imagine that most judges don't see themselves as being saddled with implicit bias. So it is probably a lot harder to engage that conversation with judicial uh, branches, you know, because they just, you know, they they just don't always think that that is a part of what influences their decision making process when they're sentencing people or making decisions on everyday people's lives. I of course disagree with that, uh, and so I've tried to you know keep that before their forefront of their minds and uh, in highlighting the practices that demonstrate that we are uh, living all of the dysfunctions of implicit bias throughout our entire system. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I see that. So where you guys, we, we talked about where you guys went to school and where, and where you got your, your law degrees and all that. What, what was that journey like for you to, to enter law? Uh, was it always something that you wanted to do, first of all, so, so we can get deeper into this conversation? But um, how, what was that journey like for each of you? I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I never thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. Like this was not in the plan. Uh, but yeah. here I am, eleven years in the game. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I say God saw a different plan for me than uh-huh. I saw for myself. I thought I was going to be a big corporate lawyer, sitting up there making a whole bunch of money. And God was like, Nah, ma'am, you're going to be doing um, prosecution, um, which I fell in love with. And I really have found what my passion is: is really having black lawyers or law students consider a career in prosecution, understand the importance of the power that we hold as prosecutors. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But um, I think this was definitely a faith journey. Um, and I'm just glad that God brought me to this space that I'm here now. Yeah. Malachi, I saw that uh, a couple posts that you had where you were uh, mentoring a bunch of law students uh, on how to how to enter the, the the system and what they should and should not do. Uh, do you lot do a lot of that with the minority uh, applicants as well, or, or prospective law students? So my um, I'm, I'm, the formal mentoring that I do is with the Black Law is in conjunction with the Black Law Student Association go. at my alma mater. So um, I'm my space for that is Black Law students. Um, and then I have informal kind of organic mentoring and all of them are students of color or aspiring students of color. So yes, um, I take anyone under that wants, any person black that wants to go into the law, I'm, I'm, I'm leading them. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, and Judge Mitchell, I, I know it's, it's kind of, <laughs> you, you can't just yeah, mentor other uh, lawyers or what have you to, to, to be judges. You know, it, you got to be elected for that. But do you kind of mentor them in the, in the law profession uh, to, to get in the law, whether it be prosecution or defense? Yeah, I do a lot of mentoring with, uh, <clears throat> with the Uni- University of Wisconsin Law School Black Students Association. I spend a lot of time with the students, especially the ones who are getting ready to graduate. Uh, but I do a lot of my community outreach that I do as a judge. I spend a lot of time in the community. I'm in schools all the time, middle school, high schools. I'm trying to encourage the young folks to do that. I have one special thing that I do when I go to speak to kids. I take my robe with them. And then I'll come out and I ask them questions like, who wants to be, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And kids never want to be a judge. So then I'll take, um, so then I'll ask them who wants to be a judge and I'll take my robe and I'll put it on them. I'll zip it up. And especially for the young, uh, for African-American young girls, since we had never had 
a African-American woman serve as a judge, I used to always tell them, you know, y'all will be the first ones. And then, you know, you can come take my job when you get ready to graduate from law school. So I spend a lot of time, you know, giving that at, giving that up. And that's one of the reasons I even stayed as a pastor, because I wanted, even after I got elected, I wanted my young people to know a black judge as they continue to grow up. I didn't like the narrative that people didn't even know what a black judge was. So I said, I'm going to stay as a pastor so that all my kids can know at least a black judge and see a black man in that role being committed to community and to my job at the same time. Yes. Yes. Love that. Love that. Did you all in your journeys have a mentor or have someone that helped you along the way um, in this? Because from the attorneys that I know, it's a very stressful kind of education system, especially when it comes closer to the bar. What were some of the people who helped propel you or kind of keep you along the way and things like that? Go ahead, somebody jump in there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely had mentors along the way um, in law school as well as just now in my career as I make decisions moving forward. In law school, probably my, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a mentor, but my best friend was the person who encouraged me to get through the bar because the bar is a stressful um, time for any law student. Those three months between graduation, if you decide to take the bar immediately after graduation, um, those three months can be pretty stressful. So you just need a support system that's going to be there for you. Um, my family was definitely a support system um, during that period of time and many of my friends. But even as I've been just going through the process of um, growing as an attorney, I surely have mentors who I reach out to, who I talk to about the pros and cons, whether or not I should take a job, leave a job, take a different opportunity, um, and just kind of help you and guide you. I think we continuously need mentors. And then I also try to be a mentor to others too, because I want to pour into others as much as people have poured into me. Yeah, absolutely. Do you offer... Oh, no, I was about to say that I, I think as a judge, I've, that's probably one of the areas I've struggled with the most because, you know, when you come to the bench, you know, it's already so few of us in this process and it's even fewer when you come to the bench. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I just have, a, I came to the bench with a very activist orientation. So, you know, I came from the streets protesting Black Lives Matter, shutting down streets. And then when I took the bench, you know, I did, I brought that with me. And so, you know, I wasn't going to be the kind of guy who just kind of, you know, changed my voice and become all niceties just so they accept me. You know, I was going to be my true self. I was going to bring my authentic self to it. And it, you, you just realize that there are not a lot of people who bring their authentic self to this position, mm -hmm. right? You know, I'm going to be my black self with my beautiful black wife and my black kids. And I'm going to be who I am in, in all that space. And you, you just realize that you have to, Sometimes this is my favorite quote. I'll say this. Do not follow the path that has been given instead to go to where there is no path and leave a trail. So, mm. you know, even though I didn't have a lot of mentors in front of me, I, I see myself as blazing trails. So a lot of young people, especially lawyers who are interested in this, can see that you can be your authentic self and still love who you are, love your people and still be at this level and represent the intelligence that all of our communities have brought to this place. So, yeah. Right. What what is the role yeah. of a judge typically in in a in a courtroom setting? Just just for our audience it, to know. And you know, a judge really is the one who makes the decision maker. It is the one who makes the decision uh when there's conflict about what two sides are trying to can't figure out how to negotiate. And for me, I'm the presiding judge of our juvenile division. So I'm responsible for our system. 
that oversees children who are released, or who, you know, children who are removed from their parents' home, as well as young people who commit juvenile crimes. So overseeing that entire system means that I have responsibility of trying to make sure that these young people who are coming through our, our pipeline uh, get the services that they need. So that means in some ways you're looking at individual cases, but in some ways I have to step back and look at the entire system and say, what 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 are the injustices being done to these young people? And so even as a judge, you know, one of the first things I did starting out was I took handcuffs off of young people. I couldn't believe they're bringing in all our black, brown, low income, white children in handcuffs for no damn reason. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I should have said that word. But they were bringing them in for no reason. <laughs> and and and, you know, all they would all it was doing is feeding in the perpetuation that these young people are nothing but many criminals rather than right. seeing them as children. And I saw I chose to see them as children, my children. They look like my children. They look like me. And so, uh, so, you know, it really is about not only dealing with the individual cases, but also thinking systemically, what could we do with this power so that we don't have to see the same type of trudge toward adult incarceration in lives of young people? Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that. And what's your, what's your thought process on that, uh, Ms. Contreras, as far as, uh, you know, our juvenile system? Are you know, you work in the in the death penalty phase of our system? What what what's your thoughts on on what our system has become and what it is today? Um, so I really liked um, what you said, Your Honor, about the um, the pipeline and the institution and the systemic implications of your decisions, especially as it relates to children. Um, I used to call it the school to prison pipeline, but I now call it the cradle to prison pipeline. Um, mm. at the birth, the birth of a black child in the hospital is recorded in jails, private jails, private prisons record those births and prepare a place for them in the institution of incarceration. So the, and, and I can tell you that I've not had a client in my care that has not been on a prong in that pipeline from birth to now. And I and I call that one, Ms. Cantrice, I call that I had to redefine it as a judge. I would say it's the child welfare to juvenile delinquency to adult prison pipeline. And what we are passing Absolutely. traumatized children, we're passing traumatized children from one system to the next without treating their underlying trauma and then act surprised when they end up in the adult incarcerated system without receiving the services. I mean, Elizabeth talked about the fact of human trafficking. I'm seeing my young black girls getting ran from one from one pimp to the next, and people are like, we need to lock them up for stealing uh, stuff out of a, a Walmart. I'm like, I'm not locking this child up. I'm getting her some help. Yep. <clears throat> but that's but th that's the mentality, right? We we value the property that somebody takes from Walmart more than the bodies of these young babies that are being abused by the adult criminal men who is engaging in these actions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I um, started law school because of having worked with uh, survivors of domestic human trafficking um, with the average age of entry as 11 years old and usually sold by a parent or a family member. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We've had the benefit of working with uh, absolutely has the understanding of a lot of our, our victims are victims and not the problem. Um, that being said, um, Ms. Simone, do you find that 
you said that you felt that you were propelled to this call and there's a weight to the mantle that you have um, in terms of a prosecutor. How, how do you feel that that plays into this conversation with knowing that there are systems in place? Do you feel that there is a um, kind of like a, a balancing act that you have to do when you're reviewing your cases and things like that? Definitely. When I go into looking at my cases, I go in there with, well, I'm a black woman, right? I'm a black. Can you all still hear me? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I go in with looking at my case. I'm a black woman with black male members of my family, black young girls in my family. And I have, and I look at a system that has not always been fair to black people. And so when I go and I look at my cases, I'm looking at what's fair, what's just, what's balancing and what is needed um one maybe to assist the defendant in becoming a better individual um and that might that's not might not be incarceration that might be some other man that might be an accountability court there might be some other additional um services that that individual needs but i'm also weighing the balance of my victims um in atlanta georgia i'll tell people all the time both my victims and my defendants are generally african-american are generally black people and so I'm weighing all of that as I go in, and it's a heavy burden to bear, knowing that you have two people's lives in your hands. And I've spent a good number of my career dealing with homicide cases um, and child sexual abuse cases and now domestic mm -hmm. violence cases. And that definitely is a, a heavy burden to bear when you're looking at those types of cases and the people who are coming into the system. Um, and understanding that some of our defendants, like we talked about earlier, have had trauma that has never been addressed. Um, but then my victims also have had trauma that has never been addressed. And so you're trying to balance um, being a voice for victims, but then also being fair and just to um, those who have been charged with offenses. Right, right. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we all know that assistant district attorneys are overworked and underpaid, right? Um, <laughs> cases stacking up. Do you find uh, Ms. Contreese that to be the same case as far as uh, public defenders um, that they're not getting uh, the pay that they need, that there's not really uh, many that are entering that career and, and they're overworked as well? Yes. So the system is is just, you know, the American way in that at the, the city or county or state level public defender is the usually the entry point and they're usually way overworked, way mm -hmm. underpaid. Um, and you don't and you don't reach the level of what you're worth really until you get to the federal side, right? But that's the federal government in general. But I will say that the the way that I work is I'm in isolated cases where in a death penalty unit, you don't have cases coming in every day. It's a slow, long process. So, I don't have to concentrate on 30 other clients when I have six clients on death row. I can concentrate on my those six clients mm -hmm. because death is so long and final and the research and the investigative work that you have to do is so lengthy. What I do find though, because I'm at the federal level is that because it went through the state at first, there was not enough time or resources to give a real defense to the client. And that's how I've gotten them after being on the road for 10 years. Yeah, I, I can see that. Definitely see that. What, what's your thought process on that, uh, Judge Mitchell? 
you think both sides are overworked and underpaid? Yeah, oh, definitely. I think the, uh, I, you know, I think sometimes I see prosecutors who, who really don't have the time to really give their victims uh, a fair shot, you know, so they're just kind of plugging through cases. And I see public defenders who are either overworked or not trained well. And so that you see people struggle on both sides because of the, uh, you know, the amount of cases that people are both bringing to prosecute as well as uh, individuals who are trying to you know, provide defense. Uh, you know, when you step outside the private, I mean, the, you know, like say federal public defender or even just a public defender's office, it's the private bar that is really difficult uh, because I'm not always quite sure that they're getting the adequate defense they need uh, because, you know, sometimes it's just like lawyers just picking up, you know, public defender cases and whether or not they have the training mentorship to actually, you know, litigate a case, you know, you'll see it just look horrible inside a court or they're just pushing their clients to accept a plea deal when, you know, you read the facts yourself and like, there is no way that they can take this to trial and get a guilty based on the facts that are being listed in front of me. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well, let me ask you real quick on that. In your role as a judge, do you have any say so on whether or not a, uh, a defendant is adequately adequately um, represented on either side or prosecuted? Uh, you know, if you can tell that this this prosecutor or this defender is uh, is <laughs> incompetent, for lack of a better phrase. Do you have any any say so on that? Oh, you got a lot of say so. The moment that people sit down in front of your court and this your name is on it, you can do whatever you pretty much want. But the, the idea is like of a judge is, you know, I feel like it's like Aladdin. I know it's going to sound stupid when I say this. And I apologize. <laughs> but I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm like Aladdin. I'm a genie. I got all this power in the itty bitty little box. I need somebody to ask me to do something in order for me to insert myself into that conversation. So a part of what the, the struggle is, is that you, you're trying to elicit from them you know, a request so that you can begin to, you know, bring some analysis to this uh, factual inch because you can't, it's a separation of powers. So you can't just insert yourself. But if, by the time they come into my courtroom, if I'm looking at facts, if I'm looking how people are behaving and responding and not, you know, treating people appropriately, I'm going to say something because I have a constitutional right uh, and a constitutional responsibility to make sure that people are getting their, you know, their, their amendment, amendment rights taken care of in court. So, is that due process is very important to me. And, you know, I will stop anything from moving forward if I don't think the due process is being given correctly. So how, um, I was just gonna say as a prosecutor, as a prosecutor, ideally, so I'm gonna say this, ideally, (laughs) my job should be to protect the process. So as a prosecutor, if I see something flawed, I should be bringing that to the court's attention. So if I see that there should have been a motion filed and defense counsel did not file a certain motion, then I should say to the court, Your Honor, I'm not sure if it's for strategy purposes or or whatever, but this motion should have been filed. It has not been. So now I'm putting the court on notice. Now, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm putting the court on notice um, that this should take place. So again, as a prosecutor, that should be what I do. Now, I'm not saying all prosecutors do that, <laughs> but they should because our job is really to protect the process to make sure that the process happens fairly as well. And people, 
unfortunately in the past prosecutors haven't done what they're supposed to do um and sometimes they'll say well <laughs> the defense attorney didn't do it so i ain't gonna say nothing but honestly that's not how it's supposed to work um and there have been mm -hmm. often times where i've seen defense counsel i've seen um cases where i think there might be a mental health diagnosis that hasn't been diagnosed and i'll say your honor mm -hmm. i don't know if this is strategy but i want to bring to the court's attention that this the state was made aware of this and now the court can inquire um, of the defense attorney, whether it's strategy, why they didn't file a motion or whatever the case may be. Um, so I just wanted to add that to that. Good job. Good job. How are cases assigned? If you can kind of share that, I, I know like you're now on the federal side, but I imagine like a lot of times people are like, I want to be a detective, but it doesn't start like that. You got to go through the academy and patrol and things like that. How are cases assigned? from homicide or things like that for up and coming attorneys or anyone in general, how is that assigned to people? Um, and how are they given the cases to work? Um, so it depends on an office. So every district attorney's office may run their operation a little bit differently. Um, I can only speak from the offices that I have been in. I've been in two Metro Atlanta offices that generally Cases come in from the police department after arrest, and usually the lower level felonies um, will be handled by attorneys who are younger in their practice. And then the more um, complex cases will go to the more senior attorneys in the office. And it'll just depend on what courtroom you're assigned to, will depend on what case you may get. So it's very random. It's like they call it the wheel. So as cases come in and get indicted, they're placed on a wheel. Um, in Fulton County, Georgia, we have 15 judges. We have 20 judges on the Superior Court bench, but 15 who handle criminal cases. So those cases get dispersed to those 15 judges. In DeKalb County, it was a little bit different. The cases are assigned once it even comes in before indictments. And then there are 10 Superior Court judges in DeKalb County. And as soon as it comes in, it goes on a wheel, it goes to a different judge. And if you're assigned to that courtroom, then you'll get the case. So it, it will vary depending on where you are. Our cases are, as, so in, on the traditional side, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. On, go ahead. on the traditionals, the traditional side, our, our office is divided between the traditional federal public defender and then the capital habeas unit where I am. So our cases, we monitor from the time someone is indicted for homicide that it and, and it's death eligible, that it may come to us at some point. Um, and then it's parsed out by um, the chief. And then on the traditional side, I'm not really sure how they're assigned, but they are as they as indictments come in and we have the client has possibly met the eligibility for public defense. It's parsed out by attorney and maybe attorney specialty. Sometimes we do get a lot of uh, child pornography because those are federal um, indictments. And I, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing there are people who are more specialized in that area. Got it. Got it. And then we all hear about uh, on TV and movies about grand juries for our people because we, we want to give a framework to to everybody watching. What what is grand jury and and how are, how do they work in our system? Um, so the, the grand jury is just a. <laughs> well, it's the formal way that uh, an individual gets indicted or for a crime. So. Um, 
the quick cliff notes version a person may get arrested we're talking about for felony charges but in georgia at least for felony charges um and fel a felony is a crime that you can get a year or more in prison um which is different from a misdemeanor which is up to 12 months although it's still a year we're talking about months versus years yeah but yeah. when you're arrested for a felony it comes in from the police the police have issued an arrest warrant or arrested someone on this on scene um at that point um there could be an investigation that goes on and once that case is um, transferred to the district attorney's office then um, the district attorney will evaluate the case and make a decision on whether or not it should be formally indicted. So even though someone may be arrested, when the district attorney looks at it, they may decide, yes, there was an arrest. There was probable cause for an arrest. However, we don't want to formally charge it. Or they can decide that they want to formally charge it. At that juncture, the case, and there's some nuances there, but certain cases are then sent to a grand jury, which is a private um, closed jury, except for law enforcement officers, and the um, prosecutor presents that presents whatever evidence that they have, and then the grand jurors will decide whether or not they will true bill it, meaning they will indict it, or no bill it, which means they feel like it wasn't enough evidence for the case to be indicted, and that at that point that starts the that starts the formal process of trial. Um, and so that's not a trial then. And it's at that point, then the formal charges have been handed down. That individual then go through a series of calendars until we get to an actual jury trial or bench trial where those charges will be either uh, put before a jury um, of 12 or before a judge. And then either the jury will render a decision or guilt or innocence um, and or the judge will render that decision. Yeah. You know, you've you've heard that uh, that that saying you can indict a ham sandwich, and that's only because uh, you know there's uh, there's no defense in the in that grand jury room. Is that correct? Correct. Um, that is correct. Is no, um, it's it's just the state um, unless there's a um, law enforcement officer. Um, right. Right. But yes. Right. Right. So since there's no judge and there's no uh, no defense in there. What, what, what do we think about that process? Uh, first, uh, Ms. Contreese, and then uh, you, Judge Mitchell. Uh, well, um, as I mentioned, it, it, it's, it's a thorn in my side. But I, I, my opinion of the process is that there is no fairness in an inequitable room. So if there is nothing to defend, then where is the fairness in that decision making the and and it's also secret so it's not like that information gets yeah. to a defense or, or any of that and you know if you've been arrested that there's a possibility you could be indicted and in that process you can't have representation in that room with the grand jury um on that case so my feeling is that it is is very unfair um yeah for the, the person being charged. Right, right. And you judge Mitchell? Yeah, we rarely use we rarely use grand juries in Wisconsin. I think uh, you know, if the prosecutor decides that this that the that they have met a burden, when I work in the prosecutor's office, you know, our edict was, you know, you only charge cases that you know believe that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Those are the cases that you charge. And so, you know, that's how we started our process when when I was a prosecutor here. 
And so, you know, we don't really have them. We don't use them. Uh, we believe that, uh, you know, to kind of to Ms. Cantrice's point, that it does create an imbalance of inequity, at least the appearance of it. So we would rather just go through the formal process and let the prosecutor make their charging decision based on the evidence that they are willing to present. And then, you know, present that information to, you know, to the court as they begin to work through the process. Got it. Got it. So we have some uh, some questions here and some comments from Facebook from Leon Jones. Uh, we have to change the culture of the system. Transparency will help change the culture. I like what I'm hearing. So appreciate you for your comments there, Mr. Jones. And uh, yeah, we, transparency. That's that's what it's what it's all about. That transparency. It's not always there in uh, in on all sides of the equation, whether it be with the, with law enforcement, whether it be with the prosecution's office, and whether it be with the uh, defender's office. Uh, Vivi V on Facebook says, "How do you restore faith in the system when we see so many injustices time after time?" Anybody jump in there? I will say I that know. as a judge. No. Oh, we all ready to jump in on that. We like everybody ready to jump in on that one. Your Honor, go ahead. I, no, my sisters, y'all go ahead. Yes, indeed. I was going to say, just like we were talking about, I think it's transparency. I think it is really seeing what those cases are. I think that restoring faith in the system comes with electing individuals who are truly dedicated to being transparent and want an understanding that there needs to be a change in the system. Um, I think that that's one way that we can begin to restore the process. Yeah. Yep. Ms. Contrice. Um, well, I would say first that, um, a system can't fail someone that it was never designed to protect. And so while we are in this fighting as black people, um, and other people of color as while we are in this system working it, if we don't understand that it is inherently unfair at the onset, right? We know that it's not designed to protect us. So we have to make even more the effort to make sure that we are protecting black and brown bodies in this system. And again, be transparent upon that, about that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. By the by, the time by the time you see the injustices, so many people have rubber stamped that injustice throughout the process. That's why, for me as a judge, I'm very clear about you know setting an expectation that from the beginning of, that a case hits my desk to this end, that we are being fair, that we're being just, that we're being transparent, and that we try to be as inclusive as we can about the entire process. Man, listen, I have, you know, we talk about big big issues of injustice happening in systems. I went, I remember I went to go see a juvenile prison for the first time right after I got elected. And I was walking through the juvenile prison and all these young black boys had their hair was looking all crazy, was looking all matted and distorted. And I asked, I pulled one of the young boys aside and I'm like, yo dog, why y'all looking like this, man? You can't be, you can't go to court looking like this. People gonna think you looking crazy, like you don't care about yourself. And the young man dropped someone we I had never I never thought of when we think about the system. He said, "Man, they got a dog groomer in here cutting our hair, a dog groomer." And I said to myself, "There's no there's no way in the world that you're gonna tell me these young black boys gonna have a sense of pride when they sit down in the chair and got a dog groomer." And so I went and talked to the warden. I was like, "Listen, black men need to have a crisp 
line in their head, not no circles. We don't do circles unless they ball hit it. <laughs> and we, you know, and so I went and I went and recruited a barber to come cut the heads of these babies so that they, when they went to court, they had a sense of purpose and dignity and can be seen as young people and human beings, right? So when we think about the injustices of the system, yeah, it, it's not designed, it's designed to see us a certain kind of way. And it's up to us inside the system to make sure that our counterparts who are doing enforcement or incarcerated don't lose the perspective that these are still human beings, despite what they have have done and that we if we're gonna if we're gonna stop having more victims we can keep creating victims at the same time absolutely and uh vvv on facebook says thank you for being great role models thank you yes appreciate that thank you for saying that appreciate you. yeah yeah and they uh on on a uh melva stennis on youtube says love the discussion very very informative i agree i agree so uh, Elizabeth and I, we are in law enforcement and uh, we, we, we like to think it's not an adversarial relationship between the defense and law enforcement. Um, what, what, what do you believe is the role of law enforcement, Ms. Contreras, in, in our criminal justice system? What do I believe the role is or what should it be? Well, <laughs> yeah, both. yes, yes. What, what, both. what, both. And I, and I love this question, Dell. And the reason I'm asking that is because you made a statement earlier that our system, the system was never set up to, to be a justice for us per se. So when people are talking about reform or fix, I don't know that you can fix something that was inherently broken when you look at equity and equality. So both, what should it be going forward and what is it now? Um, I think would be an appropriate question or response. So um, yes, and I, I always like to make sure I'm being very clear when I when I say this because I don't I do not focus on individual actors anymore in um, law enforcement in in the judiciary or in prosecution or defense. This is a system, and the system on itself was created to regulate and criminalize black bodies. That is exactly what policing was originally designed to do. So that's what it's doing, right? Now we have, it, it's kind of backfiring because we've now started to make it diverse and, and have folks of, uh, black folks and of other background women coming in, but it was all, all white male at its onset. So that was what it was designed to do. I mean, historic, that is the history of law enforcement or policing um, mm -hmm. to regulate and criminalize black bodies. And I think it's doing a darn good job of that. I, well, I'll say I'll say it's it's doing well at what it was designed to do. As far as um, reform, the we've seen all along the way that there are many um, incremental changes along the way. We change this when this happens because we we take this individual incident. We change this law when this happens. But what I will say is you cannot reform the mind of a person who is unwilling to be reformed. So we live in a caste system. We operate in a caste system with white as the dominant caste and black as the lower or subordinate caste. And if in our minds we are operating all the way indoctrinated into this caste system, if that's not reformed, then no matter how many laws you make, if you don't see a human as, if you don't see a black person as human, you will not be able to treat them humanely. And if you don't see 
a black person as anything other than criminal, then we will always be criminalized for something that maybe a white body is doing that is not seen as criminal because we don't view it that way. So, right. Right. That's yeah. what I'll say about that. Okay. Yeah. And, and I enjoy that response. I, I respect that response as well. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Mr. Uh, uh, Judge Mitchell, I mean, law enforcement comes into your courtroom, your your job. Uh, we were talking about warrants, you know, coming through and, and the job of, of a, <laughs> I saw those wide eyes there and the job of a of a judge to approve or, or disprove parts of warrants. Um, what, what is your feeling on, on law enforcement coming in, trying to pass warrants through the system, through you, through your courtroom so that they can go out and do what they want to do? Yeah, I think uh, after after the death of Breonna Taylor, you know, the, you know, the no knock warrants uh, became, you know, something that we, we start paying real close attention to, especially with our law enforcement partners. And, you know, to their credit, I think that they realized the situation in with Breonna's death was not something that law enforcement want to, you know, you know, continued as a pattern. So, you know, when I start seeing those no knock <laughs> warrants come through, you know, I would take what I call a Breonna Taylor look at these. I would have a Breonna Taylor lens on my uh, on, on looking over the facts. And I started just sending, you know, warrants back saying, you know, listen, I can't tell that this what apartment this is. There's no picture on this. There's no numbers. How do I know this is the matches the description? You need to go back. You need to tell me who's in that house, how long they've been in the house, where the kids at, who has guns, who don't have guns, what you anticipate. And, you know, elevating what I think is what law enforcement should be responsible for when they get ready to execute these type of warrants. And I don't think that, at least in my community here, that there was a big resistance to that. I think some of them appreciated it because they didn't. That's a blind spot for a lot of them. And it really takes, you know, that kind of, you know, approach of being aggressive with them and, you know, resending them back and have the courage to say, I don't like this. You need to go do something else with this. And bring it back to me, and we'll and we'll look at this uh, a little differently. But I'm not ripping them up and then you know pasting it back together for them. <laughs> but I will tell them, I will tell them that yes, you, this this isn't this isn't adequate enough for me to feel comfortable with giving you the power to then go into these people's home. You got to give me a little bit more of that, and it not only protects you know the you know somewhat the process, right? I think uh, Attorney Hilton said it's the process, and we need to be protecting the process, the due process. And whoever they arrest, you know, maybe they, they will be prosecuted them to the extent of the law, but the process has to be done a certain type of way. And it's up to us, especially those judges, not to just give a pass just because we want the law enforcement endorsement when we run for our reelection again. It's important for us to make sure that this individual case is given the attention it needs and we stand on justice and not reelection. Yep. Yep. Go ahead, Derek. You sound like you, you wanted to say something there, uh, Simone. Oh, no, I was going to say I agree. Again, I tell people all the time that, you know, I think there's a, a, a thought process and in, invalid in so that, you know, prosecutors and uh, officers are in bed with each other. And no, we work together because that's how we get our cases. But a good prosecutor should understand that at times you may have to train police officers. And I tell people all the time there might be a time where there's a you you get a you get a police report and you know that that stop looks a little like no i don't think that was a valid stop that as a prosecutor i should say mr officer 
um, thank you for getting the drugs off the street, but today this defendant is going to get let go because this was not an appropriate stop. Like this was not this this mm-hmm. was a pretextual stop, and you and let's talk about it, right? Let's let's talk about why this was pretextual. Um, and right. I think as prosecutors, you can't be afraid to have those conversations and, and have some education and do it in a way that's respectful. But that is my job too, like to also say to the law enforcement officer. This isn't appropriate. This wasn't proper. And make again, making sure that we protect defendants' rights as well. It's not solely to the defense attorney, but as prosecutors, I should be making sure that um, those rights are protected as well. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I always say that, uh, you know, officers uh, hate, a, hate a defense attorney until we need one. <laughs> Every time. They yeah, say that time. they say that about lawyers. Period. Everybody hates right. lawyers till you need. Yeah, one. no doubt, no yeah. doubt. <laughs> yeah, Tanya Rivers on Facebook says this is very informative and powerful. Thank you for sharing your stories and points of views. We appreciate your your comment there, Miss Rivers. Thank you. Um, next, uh, what sort of positive impacts have you seen in your positions uh, through your career, specifically? impacting African-Americans through your courtroom or through your caseloads? Go ahead there, Simone. Go ahead. (laughs) I can say for me, um, the positive impact, I can't tell the amount of time I've had victims who said to me, thank you. You know, like, thank you for believing in me. Thank you for believing my story. Thank you for believing that this happened to me. And to me, that is enough. And these were times where I might've went to trial and it wasn't a guilty verdict. It was a not guilty, but someone believed their, what happened to them. And and that's success to me. And that that is being able to hopefully get that person, not necessarily closure, but some type of part of that healing process for them to get to their next step. Um, I think that I've had just the opportunity to you know, people like I when they talk to me on the phone, they're like, "Oh, you black? Oh, you, there's a black prosecutor." <laughs> like that idea is foreign to them because what you don't see this on television, right? You don't see black prosecutors, no. and they're like, "I'm glad you black, good, bad, or ugly." And I think that sometimes that gives them a level of comfort to be able to discuss certain things um, with them. Um, so that's been, I think, what my positive impact has been. I'm um, just with the community and the people that I serve. Yep, yep. And I know Ms. Contreras, you you work uh with uh, death penalty cases, so I'm sure you've had a lot of positive impacts. Uh talk about one. I I think um so what I remember distinctly is the first client that I had in this office that I'm in now and um the first time I met their mom, so my role is 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 very family oriented. So I'm like the liaison. I'm investigating their life history and, and generations. So, but when I first met, so a lot of people call me Mally. So I was in, I talked with her on the phone when I was going to meet with her, um, and before I met with her, you know, we spoke by phone only. So I'm sitting in the restaurant where we're meeting, and she and her mom, it's his maternal grandmother, come in. And it's just me and another family um, in this restaurant of seven white, seven white family members. So it's just me and that person. And they're looking around to in that family, looking around because they've never had black representation for 
their son and their grandson who's been on death row for seven years. So for to see the look on that her, their face and then the tears and the thankfulness once we met and had a conversation and 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 still we're still you know it's it's like an immediate um bond and closeness and trust so i think that that is one of the best feelings is to represent and meet with and be on the side of people who have been dehumanized i mean by the time you're on death row you've been created into a monster and then you're in a cage and you you know you can barely be out um, in the sun so to see the relief and the trust on a family member's face who's facing that their other family member could be sentenced to death is or could be executed if they've already been sentenced is is probably um one of the most positive impacts i can think of yeah yep yeah i think i think every time i uh every time i started to ascend to the bench and then they say all rise and then they see my black face come through that door they were like what <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just you know. That is so awesome. I think, I, yeah. right? You know, I think, I think, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the mothers are very grateful, and so sometimes the mothers will cry because they're like, at least my child is gonna be, if my child is gonna be in the system, at least they ha- in the hands of this judge. And so I take, I mean, like I think I said on uh, the the podcast, the show with uh, Rodney the other day. I tell him, I said, man, I even grew my hair out. Like I used to have a low cut, you know, Morehouse cut is what I call it, with a nice fade taper. Morehouse man. When I saw the Morehouse man, but, I, but when I saw the kids come in, and, you know, people be talking about, y'all need to cut their hair. I'm like, no, don't let them cut their hair. It's beautiful, grow it. So mm-hmm. I started growing my hair so they wouldn't be talking to the kids like they talk. I'm like, no, the, the judge look like this. They look, I look fine. They look fine. I mess with the least I'm concerned about is their hair. I want them to be able to have a future, and their hair is the least of what I'm worried about. Judge, keep 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 it as long as you can, because you know my mine's all gone. So <laughs> I, I got you, I got you, yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, do not do. No, no, please, no, no. Hey. Uh, real quick, uh, Aldana Wilson on Facebook says this discussion is so important. Thank you. So proud of all of you and what you do. For sharing your perspectives thank you we appreciate you as well so kind of piggybacking off of that um your honor um do you find that um operating in the juvenile system as opposed to the adult system that you have more leeway to bring balance um and I don't want to say ethics, but to bring balance in how the courtroom is run, where maybe in the adult system there aren't, there's, it's a lot, maybe more red tape or kind of a, a culture um, with less grace is maybe if you find the difference in that in between the two court systems. Yeah, I think being a judge over the the, the process of chips as well as juvenile. Uh, allows for me a lot more flexibility. So I get a chance to not just be a judge. Hell, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a mentor, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I get to bring all of, the, all of my personality to the conversation that I'm about to have, you know, to try to make sure I don't pass them on to this next level. And, you know, when I couldn't get, you know, when I couldn't get people to buy into what I was doing, I even went to a film producer and we made a film you know, uh, and we address the issues of child welfare and juvenile delinquency to adult prison because I needed to give transparency of this system because it's so closed off. 
I think at least on the adult side, you at least get people who can see it in the criminal and the children's world. You don't get to see it. And I think that's why it has been so pervasive and unjust toward uh, folks of color, because nobody sees it. Nobody analyzes. Nobody can critique it. We have no advocates. Nobody's advocating for children. And so especially these children. So for me, I had to expose it. And so, you know, I brought it. I, I got a kid. He was so courageous. He let me bring a camera in on his case so that we could film his life so that people could see it for what it really was. And by the time we exposed it and let people see it, people just shocked. They're like, I, I can't believe we treat children like this. And I would say, no, we treat black children like this. This is exactly what we do. And this is exactly what the, why these kids end up in these prisons is because y'all been treating them like this for years. And then when they get in trouble further, you want to point the finger at them and not realize you had a role in this role in this creation of what they do or don't do. So I got a whole I got a whole issues of all kinds of systems that let children down. And then we blame them when they 16, 17 years old, create new offenses when we have not prepared them for, with the skills necessary to be competitive in our global world. So yeah. piggybacking off of that, um, it, and you said that, you know, in order to get to deal with the resistance um, that you were experiencing from challenging paradigms, um, you you created this film to educate and to make awareness um, for Ms. Hilton and, and for, um, sorry, for Ms. Cantrice, what I guess, what have been your methods in dealing with resistance to those that may not um, appreciate your way of um, carrying out, you know, the mantles and your responsibilities because maybe it doesn't necessarily fit the culture of the offices or the norms of the court systems that you're operating in? What have been some of the ways that you've dealt with resistance to truth in essence and to realities? of the systems so i guess you go my, first. My, yeah, my experience is a little bit different i i work for black district attorneys so my office is the ability to not have such a resistance i i, I don't personally have that issue because um i think my the leaders that i have worked for and want to make sure that we are being fair and just in how we handle our cases and are intentional about making sure that they educate the office, the, their office on how we move forward in an intentional manner. So I tell people all the time that, <laughs> I, tell, I tell people all the time that Atlanta and the Metro Atlanta is like the Mecca of Black prosecution. Um, in Atlanta, Georgia, we have 20 elected chief Black prosecutors. Um, in the metro yes. Atlanta area. Yes. So um, Georgia is just a mecca of black pride. And so, and let me say that's the metro Atlanta area. When we step when we step out a little bit outside of the metro Atlanta area, it doesn't look mm. like that. <laughs> but in that metro Atlanta area, um, it's just a little bit different prosecuting here because me the majority of our chief electors are black. And so they are intentional about understanding that these, this, these systems were not designed for us and have designed programs and um, initiatives to make sure that we're changing the face of what the criminal justice system looks like. And I'm just blessed to be, be able to serve under leaders who are intentional about uh, creating that change. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm under a leader that is, is very um, 
much about the change as well, but I haven't always been. Um, I will say that the reason why I went to law school and um, and still continuing my education, so I'm in a doctoral program on anti-racist education, and that is because education is the revolution. And just because you don't like how it sounds, it doesn't change that it's the truth. And once you are educated, you must do something differently than you've been doing if it's new to what you know, right? So I, per, perhaps at the, um, the, I don't know, I, want, I don't wanna say risk because I don't really care if people think I'm an angry black woman, but at the risk of that, I will still continue to speak the truth. I'm, I'm actually happy to be called an angry black woman because we are consistently violated enough to be angry. Mm -hmm. So I, I just don't, of course, I'm not going down on the office doorways and knocking on uh, white people's doors and saying, you need to know this. I'm not doing that. But anytime I'm speaking about issues of race and all of our cases are race, about race, whether it's a white client or a black client, we're a racialized society. I'm going to say the truth about race. And I honestly got myself to a, a position uh, marketability wise and education wise that I can do that comfortably without risking, you know, termination or silencing or something. I'm just no longer going to do that. That could also have a little bit to do with um, almost being 50 where you just sort of like, this is what I got. This is, <laughs> this is who I am. This, yep. this is it. This is it right here. This is, this it. is it. Right. And here. the truth is the truth. And here it is. Yep. So real quick, we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, biases in the criminal justice system. I mean, that's what this whole program is about. Um, where do you find in your experience that, you know, black defendants are actually charged or overcharged uh, more than, say, you know, a white defendant? Um, that more uh, black defendants are brought before your court before, you know, you have cases where, say, as, as, a, as a white person wouldn't have even been arrested by the police. And when they are, it's the job of the prosecution's office to charge them. Uh, so maybe they're overcharged. What is your your experience in that? Does that really take place or is that, you know, just a uh, urban legend? You cutting out there? Some I would Go say, ahead. yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say and uh, it happens a lot. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, depending on the prosecutor's office, uh, how they, you know, how they organize, you know, people will present cases to to you on an everyday basis. And I think as a judge, I have to be thoughtful about the cases that I'm seeing. So if there's a pattern that's being projected in front of my court and then they deviate from that pattern, I bring that to their attention. Like, for example, I used to see that they will bring like young white dudes who were like sexually assaulting girls and give them like, you know, a, a consent decrees, which which means the case would be dismissed after 12 months. And then they will bring, a, you know, for first time, but they will bring a young black girl who's first time in court and they want to have a full uh, disposition on that young girl and put on some kind of juvenile probation. I'm like, hold up. She just she may have stole a watch from, you know, from this place. But this dude just like sexually assaulted the girl and admitted to doing it. So how is it that he get 12 months and then it get dismissed and you want to bring you want me to sign up on this plea agreement with this young girl? I said, I'm not accepting this plea agreement. I dismissed this before I put her on some kind of formal uh, sentencing regards that. No, we got to be fair. And the moment that I brought that to their attention is a moment that they went back and became very conscious about how 
they presented cases to me. We do realize that most of these our cases end up in plea deals, almost 90 to 95% of them end up in plea deals. So it's very important that whatever plea deals are brought up, that they got to be fair and they got to be equitable across the board. Uh, because if not, they'd be trying to sneak stuff in. And I'm like, oh, no, that ain't that we ain't playing that game today. Yeah. No, you didn't do that. And I have I have a great memory, right? Because you know, I got a hustle memory. So I got a hustle memory. So I remember stuff that they don't think I'm gonna remember. And I'm like, no, three weeks ago you did this. I'm like, you know, like, how'd you remember that, Judge? I said, because I'm a hustler. <laughs> and this is what hustlers do. You got to remember things, right? You can't you can't make it through. I have my yeah 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 and and i think that's the same i think that was your question you i had broken up so but i think ultimately when i'm looking at cases or even when i'm telling my team when you're looking at cases like are we being consistent even with and not necessarily the cases but even like bond hearings and bond matters, making sure we're just being consistent across the board when we're looking at the history, when we're looking at the facts, when we're looking at, and if they're similar in nature. And it's really just educating my team. I tell you, I think assistant district attorneys act from top down, right? The leadership brings down how we should evaluate and look at cases. And so I'm just intentional about talking to my ADAs about how they look at the cases looking at not just the facts of this case but let's talk about what else is going on um before we make those charging decisions and so that is kind of how i try to that is it a perfect system of how we do it of course not but making sure that uh, we talk about those cases and how they look at how we break down those charges yeah you know i always want to talk about um comparing apples to apples as opposed to apples and oranges we always hear in, in law enforcement with these cases that are coming about that uh you know if something where you know where to go wrong and say Atlanta, you know the cops everywhere do the same thing, and I say no. Um, you don't know what an officer out here in Cali, where I'm at, where Lizzie and I are at, would have how to react uh, as opposed to someone in New York or someone in Utah. So the same thing in in these cases that are being brought before before courts, uh, because we we said that DA's offices are you know they're segmented. We got uh, this division that handles, you know, these sex crimes. We got these divisions that handles thefts. We got these divisions that handle, you know, homicides. So maybe when, uh, you know, sex crimes are brought before your court, uh, your honor, um, it's by a different uh, set of set of uh, lawyers that, you know, have have one set of uh, uh, thought processes. And then when, uh, you know, another set of uh, theft cases come between come before your court and maybe that's another set of uh lawyers that have another set of uh ideas and and thought processes what's your thought on that that's not my problem my problem is about justice (laughs) and fairness so if y'all need to figure out how to talk because one dude came in here said something else another person came and said something else y'all need to have a conversation yeah y'all work in the same building figure it out go have lunch but y'all not gonna allow me to co-sign y'all inequity that's not gonna happen so Go figure it out. Come back with something that's equitable and fair. Then we can have a conversation. But until that time, I'm not. I'm not your cosigner. I'm not none of y'all friends. My job is about fairness. It's about justice, and it's about making sure that this process is done right. And if y'all don't have that worked out on y'all system, then that's something that you need to continue to have some. In, y'all need to have some in-person meetings to figure it out, or maybe y'all need to go holler up with Simone down in Atlanta because they got something figured out that y'all need to replicate uh, wherever y'all are. So, so yeah, yeah. I, that that's just. 
I'm 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 crazy like that, but I'm just you know I just I just don't like people trying to push on me. They dysfunction. They that's that's y'all dysfunction. That's not mine. So y'all need to figure that out. But I'm yeah. not gonna be I'm not gonna co-sign injustice. That's just not what I do. It's a problem, but it ain't my problem. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. All right. He pulled it old school. I felt like my mom was saying, "I ain't your little friend to play with. I ain't your play thing." <laughs> Go figure it out. Y'all go figure that out. Y'all go figure that out. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, I I love this conversation. This is. It it seems like uh, the people, the viewers out there, enjoyed this conversation as well. Um, I thank each and every one of you out there for joining this conversation today. Is really, really needed. And I'm I'm glad. uh, Real quick before we get out of here, uh, each of you uh, just say something towards the uh to the audience uh you know what you'd like them to know uh before we get out of here we'll start with you miss hilton um i just want to say that thank you again for having me on the show this was great i just learned a lot uh, from everyone from all of the panelists uh, maybe i'm gonna have to come out to wisconsin like i said i didn't know we was out there like that but thank you judge mitchell for holding it down um and i just want to say everyone just the criminal justice system has not been fair, but know that there are people in the system who are trying to make it a better system uh, for those of us who look like us who are in that system. And one of my goals is really to be fair and just and making sure that our um, those who come before me as defendants are treated fairly and that the, my victims, the victims that I serve, um, have a voice. And so I'm, I'm here to serve and I, and I, I enjoy um, this um, chat this talk today yeah indeed judge mitchell i don't think i can summarize it better than i think brian stevenson has said it in his book uh, just mercy he said proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths including this vital lesson each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done my work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth the opposite of poverty is justice Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. So that's what I'm trying to live out in my calling and my mission that God has put me here is uh, to make sure that the true measure of our character is that how I treat those individuals, not just those with money. And that's what we can change and make this system more just. All right. That's what's up. Keeping it 100. I appreciate you, sir. And uh, Ms. Contrese, closing argument. Thank you here. for that. That's uh, So thank you for that. Brian Stevenson is my legal crush. I never knew there was such a thing until I met him. But um, so thank you for those He's words. He's mine too. He's would... mine too. He's mine too. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a real thing. Legal crushes are real things. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. And part of the reason why I'm, I'm also into this work. But I would also say, so I have um, one quote, and that is, um, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And so what I will say today is that I know that a lot of us aren't involved in law or in systems in higher uh, positions in more in positions that require more education simply because we don't have the inkling that is possible. And so I hope that today, whatever we talked about today and all of our differences of opinions and conversations and differences in educational and career journeys encourage someone who thought that it might not be possible. 
that it is possible now. That's all. Indeed. I'm Love this conversation. I'm ready to go back to school and get my dance doctorate. I'm ready. You For sure real. can. Go get it. You go sure can. Go get it. Go get it. You sure can. Don't tell me that. Do not tell me that because I'll be on you like that. Um, when we hey, take those L's Hey. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, Elizabeth, listen, Elizabeth. In Wisconsin, you don't have to take the bar. You just got to graduate. What? That's right. From a Wisconsin. Yep. Yes. Wow. It, it, it strongly so, had a lot of us considering moving there. Yeah, wow. you you could. I was practice. I was a practicing one week after law school. My first one week, I was a prosecutor one week after law school. No bar. Now, Ooh. now, now, what's uh, what's the, is there a benefit to passing the bar? Then is it just means you can go to another state or what? In Wisconsin, I mean, you have to be I mean, licensed you, in each you, state. State, right? You have to be licensed in each state. You get you can get some reciprocity after five years, but I mean, for the most part, all of that stress that people have, we wouldn't think we didn't have that stress. We were like, shoot, I'm gonna graduate. And I'm going to practice somewhere in the state of Wisconsin. I don't have to take that bar and kill myself, at, you know, kill my, my whole life at the process because we that was a part of the reciprocity uh, that we have here in, in the state. All right. Love the comments coming I in am- on the way out. And Nicole Williams says this was awesome. Really enjoyed the discussion. Great job, especially to my bison, babe, Simone. Yeah, that's, that's my awesome. crew. That's my bison, babe, crew, Howard crew. <laughs> my son is a I, freshman I, I, at I Howard. Gotta- what? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. I'm, 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 I'm oh, going to tell my wife that was a Howard grad on the line. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tell, my, <laughs> tell my Howard sister, all H U. Tell her that. All H U. All right. Uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. I, I love this conversation. Lizzie, you got anything to say on the way out before we get out of here? Thank you all so much for being present and represented. And just, I I always encourage my nieces and my nephews to watch. And so for them to be able to see someone that looks like them in a place of influence and with integrity, thank you for fighting even when it didn't feel good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. And thank you all for serving. Back back at you. Back at y'all. I know that's not easy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, You know, one thing I want to do with this show, I think I I mentioned this earlier, is that I want to kind of expand the show, even though it's going to be uh, still 90 percent about law enforcement, you know, uh, minorities and law enforcement. I want to expand to other other professions as well. We have some firefighters on a a couple months back. I want to get some nurses, some doctors, uh, some unsung heroes. Uh, I saw a segment, I think it was on ESPN, about some uh, some black skiers that were just indicted and inducted into the Hall of Fame. Go figure. You wouldn't have never thought about, you know, some black skiers, but uh, they were trailblazers. So I want to get more of that on and, and seeing you guys on here today. Is, uh, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's that's it for today, man. That's it. We, we, I love Everybody that. Get your stuff, move to Wisconsin so we can become attorney. Come on now. <laughs> for real. For real. Let's let's different. do it. We. I don't know if I could go to Wisconsin. Though. It may be too I'll cold for me. But. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, everybody. We see you in two weeks. Same black time, same black channel. Till then, we out. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. This has been a Nature D Entertainment presentation.